I'm very honored to deliver the Bram Fisher Lecture of 2013. I plan to keep to the time allotted to me because I'm equally interested in the dialogue that follows. Uh, comments from you are, are very important for me and, and colleagues in my office. Um, I want to uh, begin by joining in, the, in mourning Arthur Chaskelson, the former president of the International Commission of Jurists and former Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Arthur was a towering human rights activist and a profoundly decent man. Under his presidency, the Constitutional Court delivered groundbreaking jurisprudence to ensure the protection of human rights. And we will remember Arthur as a man whose contribution helped shape the new South Africa. And this new South Africa, whatever its flaws, has given all of Africa, and indeed all of humanity, hope that out of bitterness and violence, tolerance and peace can come forth. Um, I stand today here before a number of truly inspiring individuals. In the audience, I can see Lord uh, Joel Joffe, who represented Nelson Mandela during the Rivonia trial in 1963 and who also defended Walter Sisulu and Governor Mbeki. And I see um, Adelaide Joseph and unfortunately Paul Joseph could not come today. Paul Joseph was a former factory worker and trade unionist who was a defendant in the treason trial of the 1950s. And when I was a young lawyer in early 70s in South Africa, I came up here and I remember taking a statement from Paul Joseph. I was documenting the systemic use of torture by Colonel Swanepoel, who was the chief of the South African Security Services, and he was known as uh, Roynek or Redneck Swanepoel. So that's why today I remember his nickname rather than his full name. Um, and I'm sure that many of you here would remember him. Um, he had a face like a sledgehammer, a truly frightening man. So Paul Joseph was among the hundreds, hundreds of others who had been tortured by Swanepoel. Paul had been hung out by his feet from the top floor windows at the Compal building in Pretoria, the notorious torture center, where many detainees died during detention, including by being thrown out of this very top floor window. And incidentally, Paul mentioned that while they were interrogating him, the security police were also watching through binoculars and laughing at some antics that were underway in another building where a number of prostitutes were hard at work. Um, subsequently, when I went back to South Africa for our court case, my lead counsel said we couldn't use Paul Joseph's statement because he said it was defamatory of the security police. So you see, there are human rights lawyers and there are human rights lawyers. <laughs> but no such ambiguity attaches to Bram Fisher, a lawyer of formidable intellectual and moral strength. He did not separate his dedication to fundamental rights from his work as a lawyer. 
I never met Bram Fischer, I'm sorry to say, but of course, like every lawyer in South Africa, I knew of him. A colleague of mine, Roly Ardenstein, was like Bram, a member of the Communist Party, and they had been in Pretoria prison together. Roly told me that Bram was given the worst, worst tasks in that prison because, uh, as we were told, he was a very prominent member of the Afrikaner fa of an Af Afrikaner family, and so the warders felt that Bram had betrayed the white cause, whatever that was. And the younger prisoners then pleaded with Bram to let them scrub the uh, prison toilets and so on in his place, but Bram would not let them do it. He insisted that he would do the job that was assigned. So I found this integrity truly admirable. I felt a bond of pain and empathy for Bram Fisher when he was in prison. My husband, Gabby, was also in detention at that time, and his brother died around the same time that Bram's son died. And I went to Colonel Swanepoel, yes, to the sledgehammer, to ask that my husband be permitted to come out of detention to attend his brother's funeral, and miraculously, he agreed, but Bram Fisher was not allowed by the same Swanepoel to attend the funeral of his own son. And I knew how painful that must have been for him. I really felt for him at that time. Now, I've been told that this series of lectures of Bram Fisher Memorial is intended to celebrate the work of lawyers engaged in fighting injustice around the world, and moreover, that it seeks to inspire others to join and support those people who are fighting injustice. So, in my lecture today, I would like to begin by celebrating some of the most important Africans alive today. I'm pretty sure that you have never heard of most of them. Some of them are not, in fact, lawyers. They are human rights defenders, and they come from every walk of life. They are the living foundation of our systems of justice and human rights. Without them, many democratic societies on our continent and the many societies that aspire to become democratic would lose a vital pressure point and resource. Human rights defenders monitor and report abuses and challenge impunity. They uphold the right to education, the right to equality, to freedom of speech and opinion. They campaign against the exploitation of natural resources by exploitative multinationals and overlords who seek to dispose of the nation's property as though it were their own. They demand an end to the situation where unaccountable governments and anonymous institutions, banks come to mind, make decisions affecting people's lives without their involvement. No one should be excluded from decision-making because they are African or female or belong to a minority or worship a certain religion, because they are gay, have a possibility, a disability, or particular political beliefs. We all should have a voice that counts 
in our societies. Now, at the international level, the whole credibility and value of our UN human rights system, this is the treaty bodies, the Human Rights Council, the special procedures, these are the 60-odd independent experts appointed by the Council, the Universal Periodic Review, or UPR, where the human rights situation of every country is reviewed. This whole system is underpinned by the participation of these and other actors of civil society. Through their contributions of expertise and awareness raising, their monitoring and reporting, and their mobilization of public support. So when each country is reviewed, their NGOs have a voice in the council to give uh, their version of the situation. Brown Fisher once said that it was everyone's duty to stand our ground and to oppose the South African government's monstrous policy of apartheid with every means in our power. Well, the human rights defenders of Africa are standing firm and staring down monsters, just as Bram Fischer did. In many countries, and of course this is true of other regions of the world as well, but today Africa is my focus. Human rights defenders are subject to harassment, death threats, vicious and completely untrue smear campaigns, um, and this includes human rights defenders and journalists. They may be arbitrarily arrested, tortured, jailed or even killed. Some of them are forced into exile, like Joel Joffe, like Paul and Ad Adelaide Joseph. So today I would like to celebrate these men and women for their steadfast courage, their constant daily action to achieve uh, all rights for all people. They are people like Kofi Kunta, the former chair of the National Human Rights Commission of Togo, who was obliged to leave his country after he released a report in February 2012 on torture committed by the Togolese intelligence agency. Dr. Dennis Mukwege of Pansy Hospital in Bukavu in the Democratic Republic of Congo, who has repeatedly denounced mass rapes and the impunity of their perpetrators. Dr. Mukwege, who works tirelessly to treat survivors of sexual violence, recently escaped a dramatic assassination attempt. In fact, he's pleading with the United Nations to provide protection for his hospital. Lawyers, Alice Nkom and Michelle Togu in Cameroon, who represent a number of individuals charged with offenses relating to homosexuality, have received severe threats, including death threats for their work. Abdi Aziz Abdimun Ibrahim, a Somali journalist, who was recently sentenced to imprisonment for reporting an alleged rape against a young woman by government security forces. And in that particular incident, even my own staff uh, on the ground there have been threatened. Nazi Kabalo, an activist for women's rights who has documented abuses in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, was forced to flee to Egypt in 2011 following her brutal detention by Sudanese 
authorities. Floribe Shabia, one of the DRC's most prominent human rights defenders, was killed after going to a meeting at Kinshasa Police Inspectorate. He courageously documented torture and other rights abuses in the DRC and has struggled for freedom of expression and a free press. The international community has made significant advances in our support for human rights defenders. The Security Council and the Human Rights Council have condemned reprisals against human rights defenders. Special rapporteurs have been appointed to monitor and highlight their treatment, both at the United Nations and the African Union. We have established regional networks of human rights defenders throughout Africa, and there is increasing awareness of their work across the continent. The Pan-African Human Rights Defenders Network promotes a safe environment for human rights defenders across Africa and has assisted hundreds of human rights defenders at risk because of their cooperation with the United Nations. According to Hassan Shira Sheikh Ahmed, the executive director of the project in East and the Horn of Africa. My office also works closely with the organizers of an NGO forum, which takes place before each session of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, which provides an opportunity for NGOs to coordinate their human rights work in Africa, including their assistance to human rights defenders. Recent events all over the world, but particularly in North Africa, illustrate how vividly um, and how central civil society can be in sparking change, motivated by principles of non-discrimination, participation, empowerment, accountability, and respect for human dignity. We know that successful change, change that is sustainable, occurs largely because of actions that arise from within society. So, of course, I have a, a huge list of human rights defenders who are at threat in various countries in Africa. Time does not permit me to go through them. I see very many colleagues from Africa, so if I've missed your country, that's the reason. I would now, at this point, like to discuss the impact on civil society of certain counter-terrorism measures. When facing acute threats to security, state authorities often are under pressure to adopt uh, such measures to prevent and combat terrorist acts. But at times, their actions compromise respect for human rights and the rule of law. And in some instances, the provisions are so broad that even peaceful acts of dissent may fall under the definition of an act facilitating or supporting terrorism. Human rights defenders who seek to assemble peacefully to raise awareness of human rights issues or to criticize governments may be harassed and detained under these laws. I'm thinking here of people like Eskinder Neger, an Ethiopian blogger, 
an advocate for political reform who in June 2012 was found guilty of charges relating to terrorism and espionage. He was sentenced to 18 years in jail. Even non-peaceful protest protesters are not necessarily terrorists. In situation of depression due to oppression, resistance can be legitimate. Let us not forget that even Nelson Mandela was listed as a terrorist for having led a bombing campaign against government targets in the 1960s. The US only took Mandela off its terrorists watch list in 2008. So counterterrorism laws must be assessed against international human rights law and reviewed regularly to ensure that they are specific, necessary, proportionate, and hence effective. For misuse of laws is not only unjust, it is also counterproductive. The way to fight terrorism is to protect and promote human rights and the rule of law, since that will create a climate of trust between citizens and the state. No society can long be sustained if it is not built on values that are inclusive of all. Bram Fischer put it this way. He said, our police state has used the law with barbarous intensity to try to break the forces striving for basic human rights. But if the struggle for freedom is smothered in one place, it flares up again before long. He also said, unless this whole intolerable system is changed radically and rapidly, disaster must follow. Appalling bloodshed and civil war will become inevitable because as long as there is oppression of a majority, such oppression will be fought with increasing hatred. So that's what I mean by some of these measures being counterproductive. Um, I'm sure that all of you are aware that uh, the African continent is poised today on the cusp of what may be called a key transition. Most visible has been a remarkable trend of economic growth, with one-third of African countries forecast to grow by 6% or more in 2012. In fact, according to the International Monetary Fund's projections, on average, Africa will have the world's fastest growing economy of any continent over the next five years. They're calling Africa the new Asia. And alongside this, a large number of elections are underway in 2013. It's possible that we will see national elections of various kinds in Cameroon, the Central African Republic, the DRC, Djibouti, Egypt, Ethiopia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, Madagascar, Togo, Tunisia, Rwanda, Swaziland, and Zimbabwe. And this is why I thought I'll say a few words on elections in Africa. This should rightly be seen as a very positive development. Nonetheless, the ongoing protests in uh, Tunisia, Egypt, and Mali alert us to remain vigilant. Elections are, of course, the defining opportunity for people to freely exercise their civil and political rights, but they are also 
uh, a critical transitional moment with a great deal at stake. And they can exacerbate, revive, or trigger violence or conflict and related human rights violations. So human rights work is very relevant in the context of elections because it can strengthen the credibility of the process and contribute to upholding a safe and peaceful environment with a positive outcome. The work of my office, this is the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, OHCHR, includes the monitoring of human rights in the context of the elections, particularly through our field presence. We have offices in 58 countries across the world, 24 of them in Africa. We have played a significant role in a number of electoral processes. One uh, fine example of this is Togo, when, uh, where the 2005 presidential election was marred by political violence and human rights violations. In 2010, many people feared a repeat of this scenario, and the OHCHR Togo office put in place a comprehensive project to promote peaceful elections and monitor respect for human rights. We worked to involve key actors in the prevention of violence and abuses, focusing especially on political party militants, youth, media, religious networks, security forces, and the police. We also helped to, establishing, to establish a monitoring network for human rights abuses and a free telephone hotline to report and prevent violations. And of course we had the support of about 200 uh, youth whom we trained who wore t-shirts, human rights, no violence, who went around the community. So this program was widely perceived as very successful. We have learned from this work in Togo, however, that consistent and sustained engagement on the ground is crucial to any effort to influence gains. Not every effort to help with uh, elections is successful. For example, Guinea, which uh, since independence in 1958 had never enjoyed free elections, finally held a presidential election in June and November 2010. In, in the run-up to the poll, OHCHR Guinea helped train 175 human rights monitors operating across the country. Our office was also engaged in conflict prevention activities, including talks with both the presidential candidates and their teams, because the main grouse there was the, uh, that the, the, the conflict between the two parties. Human rights training of security forces and youth groups and working closely with NGOs and other local partners throughout the country to monitor human rights before, during, and after the elections. Parliamentary elections may be scheduled this year. However, the situation remains precarious with important issues regarding the preparation of the vote still unresolved. The historic referendum in South, Southern Sudan in July 2011 and the birth of the new country, South Sudan, 
has also been a challenging situation. Both the governments of Sudan and southern Sudan made tremendous efforts to ensure a peaceful and credible referendum process. The Sudanese government's acceptance of the results and respect for the will of the people should be commended. However, enormous challenges remain. South Sudan urgently needs to accelerate its transition to a responsible and accountable government that promotes and protects fundamental rights. The failure of the two countries to resolve outstanding elements of the comprehensive peace agreement, despite the efforts of President Thabo Mbeki, uh, continues to have dire consequences for the human rights of civilians, particularly those living along the border. Moreover, in Sudan, the conflict in South Kordofan and the Blue Nile continues to exact a heavy toll on civilians with more than 900,000 trapped without access to humanitarian assistance, according to the latest UN figures. I myself, even today, am dealing with the fact that the South Sudanese government uh, detained two of my own human rights officers working in Juba. Now, in light of the importance of human rights in the context of elections, my office is closely following preparation for elections in the course of 2013 in several African countries, uh, to name a few, Madagascar, Zimbabwe, and Kenya. We South Africans know how very difficult it is for societies to rise above the divisions created by decades of bitter and deeply felt hostility. Often that hostility is built on very real oppression and the urge to vengeance may be strong. At other times, it may be fanned by stereotypes and hate speech, including hatred and violence on spurious grounds of ethnic or cultural difference. From the Democratic Republic of Congo to Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea-Bissau and Zimbabwe, several African countries in recent years have seen elections disfigured by flashes of violence as well as by unacceptable limits on freedom of expression, assembly and association. Now from elections, I would like to move on to another vital challenge for the African continent and that is constitution making. The process of constitution making is far more widespread than most people realize. Of the close to, two, to the 200 national constitutions in existence today, more than half have been written or rewritten in the last 40 years. And my office regularly receives requests for assistance. This can include assistance to the state in organizing a consultative process. It, in, it can include support to civil society to educate the public about what a constitution is, why human rights are important, and how individuals can participate in constitution-making processes. It can include providing information to a draft committee on human rights standards or technical assistance during the drafting process. And it can involve assistance after a constitution has been adopted in terms of laws of implementation 
and establishment of new institutions designed to protect human rights, such as human rights commissions, gender commissions, equality commissions. Clearly, the surge of protest in several North African and Middle East countries that is often termed the Arab Spring has given rise to a number of very new situations that call for constitution-making. Perhaps the most important element of this process of constitutional, legislative and institutional reform should be its inclusiveness. Bodies that are convened to write new constitutions should be representative and ideally should arise from free elections. In Egypt, where, as all of you know, know the uh, violence uh, and difficult period of transition is uh, ongoing, the lack of inclusive participation of various actors in the constitution-making process is regrettable. The draft constitution contains some important positive elements, such as guarantees to some human rights, However, there are also some worrying omissions and ambiguities, and in some areas, the protections in it are, I regret to say, even weaker than the 1971 uh, constitution it is supposed to replace. I am highly concerned, for example, by the absence in the current draft of any reference to the international human rights treaties which Egypt has ratified and which it is bound to uphold. In Tunisia, the new constitution, which presents a number of pos positive elements, is expected to be promulgated in 2013. Human rights and the rule of law principles are present in the preamble. A separate chapter on rights and liberties is part of the draft document and a reference to women being complementary to men has been removed and the equality principle restored. In several regions of the country, open meetings are planned to empower Tunisians to express their views and concerns through open meetings. However, the political and human rights situation in the country remains worrisome with political violence, including the deplorable assassination of Chokri Belaid last week, Secretary General of the Democratic Patriots, Patriots Movement. Also this month, the General National Congress in Libya has decided on the formation of a constituent assembly to draft a new Libyan constitution. The decision is an important milestone, paving the way for reform that reflects the needs, priorities and aspirations of the Libyan people. In Somalia, meanwhile, the adoption of a provisional constitution in August 2012 marked the end of an eight-year transitional period, and we hope the beginning of a new era, one in which new political institutions will frame a stable and functional state in the country following two decades of disastrous anarchy and civil war. The constitutional text recognizes important fundamental human rights, as well as gender concerns, and creates mandates for a national human rights institution and a truth and reconciliation commission. 
It is not a perfect document. It contains contradictions in its guarantees for freedom of religion and in its provision on amnesty. And these uh, should constitute priorities for future constitutional reforms. However, in the context of one of the world's gravest and most long-running regional crises, I believe the document is a major milestone. What is now required to turn some of these constitutional human rights guarantees into realities for all Somalis without discrimination is the genuine political will, commitment and commensurate resource allocation by the new government of Somalia. Um, let me move now to conflict and managing post-conflict situations. I cannot speak about human rights challenges in Africa without mentioning conflicts. But let me not state the obvious, namely that conflicts are major sources of human rights violations in Africa. Rather, let me say a few words about the need for more conscious efforts to use the full spectrum of human rights to more effectively address the root causes of conflict and to manage post-conflict situations better to avoid recurrence. Post-conflict peace building and recovery processes like those in South Sudan, Liberia, Sierra Leone and Burundi, to name but a few, call for the effective integration of the protection of economic, social and cultural rights alongside civil and political rights. The restoration of access of the civilian population to their rights, to housing, to land, property, to water and food are equally important as issues of impunity, accountability and remedies for victims of human rights violations. Non-discrimination and tolerance must be at the heart of such restoration, particularly in the many African nations which are multicultural. Ethnic religious intolerance is currently fueling conflict in the region south of Sahara from Mali and Nigeria in the west through Chad to Sudan, South Sudan. The protection of economic, social and cultural rights for all conflict-affected population without discrimination also needs to be more clearly articulated in transitional justice processes and in post-conflict recovery strategies. The forced displacement of population, the use of forced labor, denial of access to food or water as a method of warfare, destruction of hospitals and schools, looting of properties, demolition of homes, or the destruction of crops should be recognized as human rights violations and abuses on the same footing as violations of civil and political rights. Meaning these violations require accountability and redress as an in integral part of transitional justice processes. My office leads the United Nations system in transitional justice processes, which gives us an opportunity to try and ensure that the full human rights framework can be used as post-conflict management tool, as an opportunity to prevent relapse into violence and destruction in Africa. 
the participation of victims affected by conflict, of civil society, and of human rights defenders is crucial in such processes. A word now on multilateralism, multilateralism regional bodies. Bram Fischer expressed his hope that other African states could intervene via the UN in support of the anti-apartheid struggle. And this is what he said, though it is at the moment beyond the powers of the African states to launch any direct attack, their existing influence in the United Nations can but grow and in its turn influence the countries with heavy investment in South Africa. Close quotes. And indeed, from the young child who refused to eat outspan oranges to the multinational corporations who declined to invest in our country, the world did significantly assist the movement against apartheid. Since then, a number of important regional bodies and mechanisms in Africa have been created and strengthened. In the past 25 years, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights has transformed itself from a nascent regional institution into the primary regional institution for the promotion and protection of human rights in Africa. It has developed considerable jurisprudence pertinent to the human rights situations prevailing in African countries and has established strong relationships with civil society organizations and African national human rights institutions, including the human rights defenders I, I highlighted earlier. The UN human rights bodies and the African Commission have overlapping and complementary roles in the protection and promotion of human rights. Now, regarding the African Court of Justice and Human Rights, it is important that the court be provided with adequate resources to effectively hold states accountable for human rights violations. It is also important for the court to be accessible in legal and practical terms to individual victims. And I note that the African Union's recent uh, discussions um, looked at expanding the criminal jurisdiction of this court. Um, I must say, though, I am saddened that the SADC Human Rights Tribunal has been suspended by the governments in that region. And I understand they want to do away with the complaints procedures where individuals without redress in their own countries can approach the SADC Tribunal. So that has not been functioning for two years. This month, as you know, a special court has been inaugurated in Senegal to try the former president of Chad, Hissène Habre. This court results from an agreement between Senegal and the African Union, and he will be facing charges of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and torture. Um, in conclusion, let me say, which, which you will agree with me, democracy is not a rigid construction. It's a living, evolving process. The search for realization of all human rights for all is fundamental to democracy. There is a del delicate equilibrium, a tension between various aspirations that creates a system that is to some degree responsive. International law is designed to help countries find that balance for their populations 
so that no one is excluded or discriminated against, whether politically, religiously, or in any other way. And I do want to acknowledge that great efforts are being made across countries in Africa to ensure equitable sharing of resources and to build inclusive societies in which every individual has means to fully participate in the governmental, social, and economic life of the country. And South, Africa, South African Ubuntu needs to be spread across the entire continent. So thank you very much, Gordon.